This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Folks, welcome. It's been an amazing day, and we thank you for both your patience, but I believe we'll, uh, we all agree that the discussions have been both moving, stimulating, and important for the future of an emerging Latino population. I have the honor to moderate this panel. I'm uh, Fernando Torres Hill. I'm a professor here at the Luskin School in Social Welfare and Public Policy. We have a distinguished panel of all-star academics, and it's wonderful to have us here. My job is to do something that's difficult to do with academics, to keep them keep them each to five minutes, since any of us can do a three-hour lecture at the drop of a hat. Okay, five to seven, no more than seven. Uh, but our goal here is to address the issues of mentorship, but also to take mentorship, fast forward, look to the future, and draw on Leo, on Professor Leo Estrada's premier contribution mentoring a legion and generation of individuals that have gone on to do great things, that have gone on to positions of influence. So we want to draw from his lessons, what does that mean, mentorship? How did we know him and what did that mean for us in terms of Leo as a mentor? And as importantly, what are the lessons for the future of academia and emerging Latino population, emerging diverse populations, and the crucial role of mentorship. We're gonna go in the following order, just very brief introductions. We'll begin first with Dr. Alvaro Huerta, who's at Cal Poly Pomona, followed by Dr. Nina Flores, who is at, uh, excuse me a second, Nina, you are at Cal State Long Beach, Go Beach followed by Dr. Jenna Carpio, who's here at UCLA in Chicano Chicana Studies, and Dr. Edward Tejas from UC Santa Barbara, having first been at UCLA and then, uh, Santa, and then uh, UCLA and then Princeton, excuse me. And lastly, by Dr. Nakayoka, who uh, joins us from Cal State Sacramento and Sac, otherwise known as Sac State. So uh, we won't go through your tremendous background so we can allow time for your uh, comments about Professor Estrada. I'll just say briefly, he was my mentor. As some may not know, but he was our first Latino gerontologist. Uh, he received his PhD from Florida State. He did his dissertation and his early research on Hispanic elderly and myself as a graduate student at Brandeis University looking for someone that had a background expertise in that topic gravitated to Leo. And so it was just a great thrill when I was recruited to UCLA to be in the same building, in the same hallway, and to continue my friendship and professional relationship with him. But he was my mentor, and he supported me in my work, especially in the field of aging and demographics. But all of us have a story and we will share as we address the issues of mentorship. So we'll begin with uh, Professor Huerta. Five to seven minutes, I believe. Only two of these are working, so. Hello. <clears throat> higher education, it's like uh, mountain climbing. The higher you go, the wider it gets. 
So when I was, when I finished my PhD at UC Berkeley's Department of City and Regional Planning in 2011, I was pretty much the only Chicano growing up in poverty in Tijuana and East LA to have graduated from that fine university. And that was after I received my bachelor's, my master's from UCLA, two of the greatest universities in the world. In sports, not that good. And the women are beating everybody, but the men have to catch up to the women in sports. We'll get there. Four people, apart from being smart and funny and good looking, four people that helped me get ahead in life. An immigrant mother, no formal education. Eight kids, send four of her kids to the best universities in the world. The other one be my brother, Salomon Huerta, my other brothers. My wife, Antonia, I, I sometimes say like I, I won the Antonia Montes Fellowship because she paid for my graduate school. <laughs> it was an annual fellowship, I had to apply every year. <laughs> my academic, Homeboy from Boa Heights, Juan Gomez Quinones, and Leo Estrada. My friend, my mentor, colleague. So for me, Leo, it was because of him in particular that we're, we're speaking on mentorship. If it wasn't for Leo, I wouldn't be here sitting today. I would probably be standing, but no, just kidding. It was because of Leo. I feel bad. I, feel... I couldn't make it to the celebration at UCLA. It was when he retired because we had our own family emergency. But I wanted to say bye. I wanted to say thank you. And I tried calling him, but I know it wasn't easy for him to return calls and emails. But it was because of Leo and his mentorship and his belief that someone like myself, who attended K-12 schools that were so bad that was only, they only required us one book to read and one paper to write. And I was a math major, so by the time I got to UCLA, I wasn't ready academically. And a lot of times academics, they forget that they too, at one point, didn't understand the academy. They become judgmental. They have selective amnesia, but not Leo. So I wrote an essay about him in, in Insider, Inside Higher Education, and it's gonna come out in my forthcoming book on, on defending Latino immigrants in the xenophobic era of Trump. And I wrote another article that's gonna come out recently about mentorship, and these are four things that I learned, or five key lessons, why I see, those five. This is what happens when you get nervous and emotional. Five lessons. One, Leo taught us how to listen. Academics were taught how to speak and how to teach, how to preach, how to hector. But Leo taught us how to listen. He would listen to you first. He taught us how to be empathetic and sympathetic. 
He had empathy for people as human beings. He didn't see you as a student. He didn't see you uh, as, as anything else but a human being. And he had empathy. He, he, he first understood that you were the first in your family to go to college. You, you probably didn't have the resources. You, you didn't have $500,000 to go to school like USC. I don't know why he's not worth 500,000, like 50 bucks probably. Vessels <laughs> or something. <laughs> he was non-judgmental. He didn't judge you. When you said you were struggling, you didn't understand something, he didn't judge you. He didn't make you feel like you were inferior. He didn't say, like most academics say to their students, you should have known that by now. I didn't transfer to community college. But a lot of academics say, well, you should have learned that at a community college. Or you should have learned that in high school. But they didn't teach that in East LA. He provided a plan of action. He provided, a, you, you told him, what's your problem? What is it that you're dealing with? And he was very methodical. I mean, everything that everybody said, it's amazing. My fellow speakers, not as eloquent as me, but it's okay, it's not their fault. It's amazing how everything everybody said just kept nodding my head. That's Leo. When he told you, do this, this, and this. And it came to a point, I trusted him so much, I go, Leo, I want to be just like you. I want to be an academic. Just tell me what to do. Okay, and then he just said this, this, and this. We would meet for an hour. You have to sign up in his office. You have to, I used to take up like two hours. <laughs> and for like an hour and 45 minutes, we would talk about his kids and we would talk about my son. Talk about his lovely wife, talk about my wife, how they were smarter and better looking than us. <laughs> we, yeah. It's good to marry somebody smarter, makes you look smarter. But he, after the 50 minutes and the 10 minutes, he'll say, okay, do this, this, and this, Alvaro. And I just did this and this, and here I am. Like in the main streets where I grew up, Big Hazard, Ramona Gardens, where if you are weak, I was always thin all my life. So I was easy prey for the homeboys and the cops. But I had friends. I have some friends, friends of mine, and they had my back. And because of them, I survived. And in the academy, which happens to be cold and impersonal and institutional, I survived and I thrived because my homeboy Leo had my back. Muchas gracias. Hello. I'm feeling really nervous and really emotional, so I'm just going to read my thing, um, which I don't usually do. Usually I will speak off the cuff, and I'm feeling like if I do, it will just spiral out of control. But I do have tissues, which I'm welcome to sh <laughs> share. Um, so I will say, so I'm a, a professor at Long Beach State right now, um, a position that Leo encouraged me to take. And I know that sometimes when you are coming up in an R1 university, you are not encouraged to take teaching positions. And so I was always really grateful that he championed me in wanting to take that job. Um, so my connection to him is that I was one of his PhD students here at UCLA. I graduated in 2016, so not that long ago. Um, and I wanted to tell a quick anecdote about our first interaction, um, which really set the stage for me um, in terms of how I was going to be working with him and moving forward. So the first time I experienced the Leo sense of authentic care, as I think of it in my head, um, was before we even met. Um, 
It's early 2011. It is a heavy, rainy day, which uh, at the time we were in a drought. So it was, uh, I was driving to work, and my cell phone rang. And even though I don't usually answer phone numbers I don't know, I saw, as I'm sure many of you now recognize, 310825 mm -hmm. come through on my cell phone. And I just had this feeling. I was like, oh, wait, I, I think this is important. Let me take it, take the phone call. Um, a few months before, I had applied to the UCLA Urban Planning Program, and I certainly wasn't expecting anyone to contact me by phone. Um, but as a first-generation student, I did also, like, how did I know what to expect or not expect? Uh, so I received the surprise call, I answer it. And on the other end, I hear, hello, this is Leo Estrada from UCLA. Is this a good time to talk? And I dropped the phone immediately between my center console and my seat. Um, <laughs> So on his end of the line, I'm sure there was massive shuffling as I was cussing to myself and trying to grab this phone, knowing that this was a really important call and so nervous I couldn't even hold the phone. Um, and so I, I, I fish it out and I hear again this calm voice. It sounds like you're driving. It's raining today, but you should pull over. I want you to be safe. I have never met this man before in my life, right? This is something my parent might tell me. Um, and I dutifully pull over. And I, and I don't feel like he's telling me what to do, but I know he's telling me what to do. I pull over. Uh, and and I, I let him know. I'm like, okay, I, I've pulled over. He says, good, um, let's talk about your application. And my heart is just, just going, kind of like it is right now. Um, and he says, tell me about this jury consulting work. And so in my past career, I had been a jury consultant. I flew to state to state, um, doing a lot of pretrial jury selection focus group and work. And I was really worried when I applied to this program that people would see that and they would think that I was hopping from job to academic. It wasn't related to urban planning or academia. What was I doing applying to this program? I, I still don't know, but I'm so glad I got in. Um, and I, I worried that it would distract from my, my desire to do research and teaching in this area. And here Lael was, right? The first question out of his mouth is, tell me about this jury consulting. Um, and he puts that front and center. And basically, uh, there was something in his voice that just told me that I could speak openly. Um, and I, I let him know that I was worried that the admissions committee would think I was not a good fit based on my background. And so he continues to confirm my fears. And he tells me, yes, that's actually raised some questions for us, and that's why I'm calling you today. I've been asked to get clarification about your file. Uh, so again, my heart is, is going and going and going, and I offer a very rambling, anxiety-ridden description of my job and in hopes that in this rainy car, which is now fogging up because I am so nervous um, and the rain is still coming down, and this calm voice on the other end is telling me, well, what you're telling me is that you have interviewed hundreds of people across the country and can tell me about regional differences through this focus group work, and I think that that's an incredible asset. And I, I just paused because that reframing and that affirmation that this non-academic track you know, through my life was, uh, was something that was worth being in a PhD program meant everything to me. And so through this small moment, I get to see this glimpse of what my experience might be working with Leo. And so I was, I was accepted. Thank you, admissions committee. Um, and over this five-year program, um, he was my program advisor, my dissertation advisor, a professor I TA'd for, a mentor, became a friend. And he was also my model for what I'm calling the Leo School of Mentorship. And I think that anyone in this room who knew Leo knows that this includes, it centers building relationships, deep authentic care, humor, we all know that generous laugh, right? We can hear it. Um, and encouraging you to release the best version of yourself into the academic environment, not the version that strives to fall in line with the very white, male, middle-class, heterosexual, cisgender values that form this kind of invisible standard of what it is to be an academic. And he really wanted you to be the version of yourself that was the true you 
and was going to champion that for you. Um, and so most importantly, he also modeled for me what it looks like to treat all students this way. So I think often we, have, we see examples of this type of mentorship, but it's reserved for these very few students that someone connects with. And he, he showed me that you can just show up and show love to these hundreds, if not thousands of students. And anyone that encountered Leo that was in his orbit experienced that kind of mentorship, right? They experienced that kind of connection. Um, and so last week, I was awarded our College of Education's Most Valuable Professor Award at Long Beach right. State. Thank you. I brought it because um, I brought it. Yeah, I brought it because I just kept thinking that all I wanted to do was share this with Leo. Um, and as someone who's so early in her track and her career track, I feel academically orphaned in so many ways because I don't have that person that I'm. Hey, look what look look. This is it. Um, and I also thought to myself, very similar to the previous comments, that this is because of Leo. I wouldn't be here except for Leo. Um, and I think so many of us have that same feeling that we would not be here if not for Leo. Um, and so, Leo, this is for you, who is like a forever MVP and this light that I think is guiding so many of us in so many different ways. Thank you. Oh, oh sorry. Thank you. Don't drink and drive. <laughs> um, hello, everyone. Thank you for being here today. Um, so I was an urban planning master student back when it was a master's program um, between 2005 and 2007. And it was during that time that I took coursework with Professor Leo Estrada. And in particular, I took his GIS course. And that was a game changer for me. A lot of us have heard about his incredible research and mapping. Um, but for me, being a student coming directly out of undergraduate, um, he really opened the doors for me to think about data in this new way, um, to see data not just as facts that can't be questioned, but rather to think about how data is created, how it's displayed, and how it might be reappropriated to serve progressive ends. Um, and in particular, I think that he really opened the door to thinking about how we can increase access and things like GIS amongst a broad cross-section of people. And he did this at a time where that was really quite difficult. It took really specialized knowledges and data. And for me, I was a person who came out of a humanist background. So to think about something like geographic informational systems wasn't exactly a place where I thought that I could thrive. But it was through the mentorship of people like Leo that I could carve a place for myself to see how this type of data could be used by someone like me for humanist ends. Um, and now I teach my own courses in mapping where we think deeply at UCLA and courses in Chicano Chicano studies that draw students involved and interested in public affairs. So I feel like it's been really important for me um, to be able to pay those lessons forward to the next generation of students that are coming. Um, I also had the fortune and unique experience of um, encountering Leo in his role as chair of the Academic Senate. So this is really very full circle for me because I returned to UCLA not as a student but as a faculty member in 2015. And to see him in that leadership position um, really created an opening for me to feel again like there is a space for me at a place like UCLA. Um, and it really kind of curved the anxiety I had about being a new faculty member here. 
Um, so in the time that I have, I want to share my experiences of mentorship with Leo in ways that were unique from the panelists and that I didn't actually work directly with him. Um, and I think that in that sense, you know, in being one of his students and being a faculty member um, who, who was influenced by his leadership in the academy, I think actually represent a large subset of students who benefited from him indirectly, but substantially. And then what I wanna do is read part of a letter that I wrote to him upon his retirement. I wrote, I'm one of those students who you probably wouldn't remember, but I remember you. I remember the ways you introduced me to mapping as a form of social science research when I took your GIS course in my first year. Mapping continues to inform my methods in substantial ways now that I'm an academic myself. I remember your presence on the faculty, which as a Latina and the first in my family to consider a graduate education, suggested to me that I might also pursue a path in academia. And I remember my first days at UCLA in 2015, where as a new junior faculty member, it helped ease my first jitters to see a familiar and friendly face on the academic senate. As my department's representative in the legislative committee, your presence in higher administration always seemed welcoming. I never reached out, but I always felt like I could. So for all of those students who never said so and may not have quite stuck out in the classroom, I want you to know that you're deeply appreciated and that you've had a lasting and significant impact on us. We're all indebted to your legacy, the one you leave behind, and the path forward you forged for those who follow. And for me, it was really important to tell him that as a faculty member, um, because so often the impact that we have on students, um, it manifests much later, right? We don't get to hear those stories. Um, and I think that it really speaks to the importance of role models like Leo in places like urban planning and academia at large and it emphasizes the importance of diverse faculty in an increasingly diverse world where we need faculty that represent the life experiences of our students. And lastly, I think it shows the exponential impact of faculty like Leo who mentor one-on-one -on -one in very profound ways, who lead by example as he did for me, and through those who pay it forward. And uh, just a small anecdote um, is actually while I was in planning that someone that he mentored very personally, who is sitting to my left, shared his Ford Foundation Fellowship with me, which really opened up my pathway to becoming a professor. Um, so, you know, I think that the impact is exponential and subsequent in terms of the mentorship I've received from those that he's mentored, as well as from his example, and it's one that I now hope to pay forward. Um, I'm going to read two because I, have, I, I should get longer because I've been around longer, right? But um, anyway, thank you for, in the, for the honor of inviting me to this panel. Um, and saludos a Ibelis and, and our wonderful family, um, Rico and, and, uh, and Andres. And, um, and Rico, when I see Rico, I see, I, see, I see Leo. I go, it's just amazing. It's just, you know, it's, 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 uh, I see him all over again. Um, but I met Leo in 1981. Uh, after Arce, uh, but before Vargas, uh, when a group of Latinos organized a group called Californians for Fair Representation. Uh, the group sought to propose new political districts after 
1980 census for California and Los Angeles that would enhance the political representation of the growing Latino population. So I had recently graduated from college, taught ESL, and then worked for the city of LA and did volunteer work like I campaigned for uh, Gloria Molina for the assembly. Is she here? She's no longer here. She probably wouldn't remember me anyways. But I, I really didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, I was on the research committee of California's. We had political outreach and fundraising committees, and I was tasked with going out to the Rose Center at the Claremont College to work with his young demographer and GIS specialist, Leo Estrada. The Rose Center, which had the leading technology of the time for drawing maps based on census tracts, uh, tra census tract populations, was ironically set up by the California Republican Party to work on their own districting plans. For some reason, and only Leo would know, I think, they decided to share their center, not knowing that these Mexicans knew what they were doing. But thanks to Leo, they did. By 1990, as Arturo Vargas has documented, they would know better. In any case, I got to know Leo at our frequent evening sessions at the Rosen Center when the Republicans were not using the computers. More importantly, we were doing some consequential work that would greatly enhance Latino political representation. Of course, the, the lawsuit uh, that Thomas Sainz talked about also improved it. Leo and I had some nice chats. I was impressed with the work he was doing, and he convinced me to go to graduate school at Urban Planning at UCLA. Aside from that, Leo's infectious, merry, and selfless personality, along with his impressive skills and knowledge, were refreshing, especially after my daily slog, sometimes mindless, in LA City's bureaucratic maze. Professionally, I had been working for the city and figured that at least with an MA in urban planning that I could come back and get a promotion or I might even decide to go for the PhD. The US, UCLA experience was vital for my growth and Leo was central. I did the MA and admired Leo's work from afar, not to mention his lifestyle. I thought, you do what for a living and you get paid for that? And, and uh, so I could go for that. I eventually decided to pursue the PhD, especially after I realized that I had similar skills and being a professor like Leo was the job for me. It, I became a professor because of Leo, that's, that's the story. The experience of the MA at UCLA was very rewarding, learning important skills and knowledge, getting Leo's sage advice and teachings on a regular basis and doing meaningful community work and enjoying it at the same time. It was fantastic. My classmates were many, including Eddie Reyes, a former LA City Councilman, and Marcos Vargas, a well-known community organizer in the Central Coast, just to name two. Together, my classmates were inspiration, showing early commitment and motivation, and I could imagine that they all happened to be drawn to the same place only because of Leo. Perhaps mentoring is Leo's lasting legacy. He changed the lives of so many young people. But so is his early understanding of the potential growth of the Latino population nationally and his concern for capturing its potential for political participation. That legacy lives and is so important today. Leo's work came at the cost of his research career, or his career, as Carlos Arce noted. Unfortunately, mentoring is hardly recognized by the university. But he had so many students and his indirect effect through them if that could be measured, is phenomenal. Universities need to reward some exceptional membership. And I don't know if this is possible, but I think Leo always teaches us to think about the impossible. 
Um, but we, I think we should, we should direct a telephone campaign, letter writing campaign to promote Leo. And, uh, and if anybody has ideas. Thank yeah. you. So this, stand up please. Okay, this particular, just a couple minutes. Please. This, partic this tribute is particularly fitting today as the Supreme Court is set to decide whether the Trump administration plans to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. Yesterday we found out that the daughter of the deceased electoral strategist behind the Republicans' gerrymandering efforts, Thomas Hofeller, recently discovered her late father's hard drives, which disclosed his, the gerryman his gerrymandering strategy. In a conservative report sponsored by the Washington Free Beacon and, and funded by conservative billionaire Paul Singer, Mr. Hofeller was charged with assessing the drawing of political maps that were based not on populations, as the Constitution mandates, but on American citizens of voting age. In Mr. Hofeller's exhaustive analysis of Texas legislative districts comparing maps based on citizenship of adults, um, he argued, such, a, such maps would be advantageous, this is, he said, quote, such maps would be advantageous to Republicans and non-Hispanic whites and dilute the power of the state's Hispanics. As we know and as conservatives know very well, once Texas becomes Democratic, and Latinos may change that soon, then Republicans are unlikely to ever capture the presidency again. Republican leaders know that conservative gerrymanders based on citizenship is the way out to keep themselves in power, at least in the near future. Since there is no detailed citizenship currently available, they have thus called for the citizenship question. Leo was central in these battles and surely he would have been a leading voice today. However, the legions of people that he taught and inspired are now so important to oppose this repressive wave of anti-Latino sentiment. Thank you for that gift, Leo. Thank you, Ed, that was important. <laughs> Professor Nakayoka. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. I'm gonna try to get through this too quickly and without crying and reading. Um, Leo was my doctoral program advisor. Like so many others, I would not have gotten in nor finished without him. Um, I was 41 when I went back to get my PhD. I was a single parent for part of the time, and even the times that I had a partner, he brought with him two kids, so that didn't necessarily make it much easier. Um, I worked full-time, and my background was actually in social work and Asian American studies, so I, I didn't have a, a, a background in planning. And when I think about him, it's a social work concept that comes to mind is in his mentorship approach, and that's of a trauma-informed care, or trauma-informed practice, or pedagogy. Um, trauma-informed has kind of taken over social work, and in some ways, um, that's a good thing. It's a much-needed um, approach for people dealing with real trauma, but it's also not so good because it doesn't address the systems and structures that causes the trauma, right? Sometimes if you all people just can deal with your trauma, we'll be good, but doesn't really talk about systemic issues. So when I think about Leo, he does both. And I may not have time to talk about the structural stuff because um, the sign, signs are really intimidating, <laughs> but um, I'll talk about what he did for me. 
Um, so trauma is really a ma any major event witnessed or experienced that upsets or interrupts our ability to cope with daily life. As a woman of color in America, experiencing a whole range of trauma is, is actually right norm normal. Um, I don't think I'm very, I don't have like tons of trauma, but just being, again, it's, it's kind of normal. Um, my experiences include sexual violence, blatant sexual harassment on the job, documented pay disparities that everyone acknowledged, but I was too tired to fight. The historical trauma of having, of having Japanese-American parents who were born in the World War II concentration camps was exacerbated the fact that I never knew my maternal grandmother, who died only two years after the war from a chronic disease that was made worse by the lack of medical care in the camps. So for students of, of color coming to UCLA, they come with these traumas that we don't know about, right? Or it's unspoken. And oftentimes, um, sometimes those traumas are also inflicted upon us by the university. Um, so I, I'd like to start by saying that I love, I'm gonna apologize in advance, I love UCLA. I did my undergrad, master's, doctor at UCLA. My, when I use my heart emoji, it's not a red heart, it's a blue and gold heart. I mean, I love UCLA. Um, you know, I got in when you could still get in as a 3.5 GPA and tuition was $330 a quarter. Uh, <laughs> and which was doable for my working class parents, right? It was accessible to me and my parents. I came to grad school and, and, and met a professor that created this dual program in social work and Asian American studies for me and a colleague. So there's so many things I'm grateful for about UCLA and especially Leo. But there were some times that UCLA was not so great. As an undergrad, for example, in my so-called classics class on Greek and Roman history, the professor d delivered a five-minute speech to the class of 200 students about how, how I was an intellectual terrorist because the week before I suggested he should no longer use the term oriental when disparaging Asian civilizations in his lectures. At the Asian American Graduate Student Organization, a staff member with concern said, wow, I don't think we've ever had a master's student who was a parent before. And if we have, I know for sure we've never had a single parent. And then, and then walked away, leaving me there uncertain about my recent decision to quit a job as the director of a Ramona Gardens Community Service Center and return to school as a 26-year-old with a one-year-old. Um, one and while in the MSW program, sorry, he's no longer here, um, a white faculty member <laughs> who had done research in Japan would bow to me in the hallways and speak Japanese to me, even though I repeatedly told him I was third generation and do not speak Japanese. So when I was ready to enter a doctoral program at the age of 41, my son was in middle school and I had a partner with two children. I couldn't move. I couldn't, I had to keep working. I looked into the two social work programs in LA and they both told me you had to keep working. I mean, you, you couldn't work, you couldn't have a job. So people said, well, that's okay. Just don't tell them you're working. You could just hide it. And I couldn't hide it because my job was as an MSW faculty doing field internships. So I would see the social work folks at events. So my only options as a parent to get a PhD was not to get an, or get an EDD, which people were telling me not to do that, or lie. Um, so I knew that that wasn't gonna work. So I, I provide these examples to say that, you know, mine are really minor. I didn't have any really made, you know, these microaggressions or experiences were minor compared to some of what I've heard from students. But when we talk about the imposter syndrome in the university, it's, it's as if it's something that comes up because we lack self-confidence or we lack experience, when really we don't think about how the university has explicitly told us that we don't belong due to race, class, or gender or that it would be unusual for us to finish. So these are injuries or traumas that we come with as students of color. So Leo, with his trauma-informed approach, okay, 
um, he strives to maximize choices for, this is a trauma-informed tenant, one that uh, maximizes choices for the survivor and gives them control over the healing process. So um, realizing an urban planning and, uh, doctorate was a better fit for me anyway, Leo um, and Lois Takahashi said, I know how to get her through, I'll take her on. So I wouldn't have even got in again without him. When I first asked him uh, if it would be a problem if I didn't want to uh, go to a research university, I wasn't sure. Um, he assured me that he would figure out um, a goal for me that would be postdoctorate and that I would that uh, would be right for me, that it didn't matter if I didn't necessarily want to go to an R1. Um, a lot of people have talked about the safe space he created in his offices, but that's one that avoids re-victimization, right? And that's another tenet of a trauma-informed approach, right? He, he treated you, he talked about um, being a parent, he talked about his, his uh, children and asked about mine, um, his vacations in Puerto Rico and asked about mine. And he, did, he normalized my role as a parent. It wasn't, he didn't problematize it. Um, even when we messed up, I didn't feel judged by him. And one of the tenets of a trauma-informed approach is that problem behaviors begin as understandable attempts to cope. And I think he understood that even when we kind of faltered or were making excuses, um, that that was kind of part of it and, and he never made me feel bad about it. And then finally, he understood um, each survivor, and this is a tenet, each survivor in the context of life experience and cultural background. When I went into his office, you know, I'm from Montebello, right next to Pico Rivera. His face was like home, his smile, his hug, hugs were like home. And he repeatedly laid out the plan for achieving the milestones in my program, reminded me not to get involved in drama at my full-time job and made sure he had funding. So, uh, so really all of this encouraging growth and resiliency. So when I had to graduate on a shorter timeline because I had a job offer, he cashed in some favors with his other committee members to speed me through, favors he had earned by hours of working with other students. And that to me was part of his trauma-informed pedagogy. Thank you very much. And Thank you to each of the panels for these wonderful reflections about both Leo's mentorship impact and also the power of mentorship. In, in the few minutes we have left, I want to ask each, uh, I would like you each to address the following question, however briefly. And by the way, thank you to the timekeeper for keeping us academics yeah. in line. So. You were great. Uh, and the question is a combination of, uh, for each of you, what lessons can you draw from Professor Estrada's mentorship impact that can be transferable for universities and for other faculty? And what influence might today, this wonderful celebration of the Estrada influence and his family and friends and colleagues being here, what influence or impact might this have on your career and community involvement going forward? In other words, how has this influenced you as to what you'll do when you leave today. I'll give you an example very quickly. I would answer it this way. Uh, Leo, before he retired, and maybe about five, six months before he passed away, I had a chance to talk to him, and he would always tell me that uh, when I retire, I'm going to stay involved because UCLA needs to be influenced by diverse faculty. So despite having served as chair of the Academic Senate, when I retire, I'm gonna teach, I'm gonna work with the chancellor. And I kept saying, but Leo, you could cruise, you can coast, you've got a wonderful family, grandchildren. But he says, no, 
we can never stop being involved. So what does today mean? My dean isn't here right now, but uh, I'm close to retirement. I want to cruise. I want to kick back. I want to enjoy my wonderful UC pension. We have five grandchildren now, and I want to spend time with them. But I have Leo bugging me. <laughs> so what have I done? And my wife told me, are you crazy? I've been asked to be on the graduate council for the next three years, a time-consuming responsibility for the university. And I told Evelise, I blame Leo. I said, I will do it. I will stay involved. So that's my story. So let's just work our way down again with Susan, Alvaro, and then each of you, your story. Oh, One okay. Yeah, I'll just be really quick. So um, talking about kind of, again, how he does this structurally, and I think this is how I think about my role in academia, um, he really helped in large numbers um, students of color infiltrate infiltrate spaces of power. So not integrate, but infiltrate, and I think there's a difference. Um, and not just in the academy, but in city planning and beyond. When I talk to, to folks um, or meet people on the street who came to the school, they always ask about Leo, and they're doing all kinds of things. Um, his was a pro protracted struggle. It was long-term. It was done over years of diligent work to provide access, build skills, and lift it up. So I think that lengthiness and the de dedication. Um, he really enacted spatial entitlement without having to say it. He asserted our spaces as well as his own. Um, and I think a lot of times we're saying that he's one of a kind, but it, and, and he is, he was, he is. But I think that doesn't honor the fact that because of him we are and we're, we're carrying that on. So. I already said a few, but I would add um, this idea of, of believing in people. Uh, when somebody comes to you to tell them that you believe in them, even sometimes when you believe in somebody that they themselves don't believe in themselves, so you, you actually believe in them more than they believe in themselves, and a lot of it has to do because of the communities that we're dealing with. You're talking about the trauma, um, and a lot of times, and even in traditional households, uh, like speaking only of, of my, my people, the Mexican people, is, you know, if you have a traditional father, for example, from the rancho, you know, this, he doesn't know how to say I love you, stuff like that. Uh, so when you have people that say, you know, like a professor that he cares about you and he believes in you, that, that goes a long way. Um, and I, that for me, I always remind my students, you know, that they're brilliant, uh, even though they keep texting when they shouldn't, uh, <laughs> that they're smart and they can do it. And, and stay constructive, always stay constructive. Uh, even if you see somebody has some type of uh, bad habits in terms of their study habits, but be constructive, don't point out the obvious. So I think these are the, the type of uh, things that I've learned from Leo. Uh, I think Leo and I kind of were, like Lady Gaga says, you know, like uh, I was born this way, baby, you know, like <laughs> I think I was born, like Leo and I were like, kind of like, we're the same in that sense. Because I've always been that way, but when I met Leo, he kind of took me to another level. You know, it's like when you're brown belt going to black belt. So I, I think he, he was kind of like the master at it. But this is something that's not practiced in, the acad in academia, you know, to, to care for students and show them that you care and you believe in them. And I think that's, we need to, we need to do that. If I were going to say one lesson or takeaway for me, I think that it's, that mentorship happens in big ways, as we've seen on this panel, but it also happens in those little ways. 
So for me, something like seeing um, Leo in an event and him coming up to me and smiling and introducing me to someone when I don't know anybody in the room, like that was so significant um, for making me feel like I had a place here. And also very practically to like help build connections, right, across the university. Um, so I think that it's a reminder that you know, sometimes when we're faculty or administrators or, you know, take our professional um, jobs outside of the academy, um, something that might seem very small to us um, can actually be quite impactful to somebody, um, as it was for me. So, and I think about how I might take this and move it forward beyond the event today. Um, I think it's about making time for those small moments. Um, and especially when we're at an R1 that's research driven, I think it means continually pausing and taking that breath to take the moment to smile at someone, to ask someone how their day is going, to connecting into someone across the room. Um, and I think that's some, a continual commitment that we have to make over and over again. Um, and I think that's one that I can sign on to for today. Um, I just think, you know, Leo is one of a kind, and uh, he sets a very high bar for all of us, and I just think for, you know, what it means is not so much just in mentoring, but just being a human, and I think when you're doing mentoring and teaching and, and, and you're just interacting with people in general, you just, have, I, I mean, you, I think of Leo, I mean, this is somebody who's calm and supportive and understands you and everything that people have said here, so that's what I would take away from it, and I just... I think we have to honor that. I think um, about how easy Leo made mentoring look and the fact that it's really hard work and he was so intentional in everything that he was doing at all times. He just made it look like it was nothing at all and he put so much of himself into it that uh, just recognizing that it's not accidental. Right, like he was intentional in how he was caring for students, whether they were his own or not. I mean, I saw so many people on that office hour sign-up sheet who I had never even heard of before, um, and they were coming from departments from across campus because they knew him, and maybe they had taken one class with him two years ago, but they knew they could sign up for his time. Um, so that intentionality, and I also think about when I look at the crowd, he had said one day, and I'm sure, Susan, you've heard it too, um, there's, so there's this people's candy jar in his office, right? It's, yeah, and it's full of, of candy. Yeah, Snickers, Milky Way, um, all of our fuel. And he, I had laughed about it one day. He said, oh, well, someday I'm going to raise up my revolutionary army. And I, well, here we all are, right? Like, this is this raising up of this revolutionary army. And so we have this duty, right, to, to, keep, to keep going um, and to, to take that with us. Thank you very much. In the last remaining minutes, uh, I think we have time for one or two uh, questions from the audience. We just have five minutes left. So... Who would like, I can't see with the light, so first question. I think there's a person over here. It's just a comment. I think it's amazing to see six professors, Latino professors of color, on a stage. Again, I went to a majority white college and didn't have, had one professor of color, and my dad was always bothering me. If you went to UCLA, you would have all these <laughs> other professors. So I just want to thank you guys for all that you are doing and for telling students that they're not crazy and for letting students cry in your office and in your arms 
and holding that space because it really does mean a lot to us. And I know a lot of me and a lot of my friends from across the country have told me so much about various professors of color. So I just want to thank you for being here. Thank you for being visual. And thank you just for all that you do. So. We, we all appreciate that. Thank you. Next question, comment. I think there's one over here. I believe I see one here. Hi, uh, Michelle McGollin, uh, one of Leo's uh, doctoral students. Um, I think one of the things that many of you on the panel talked about today was the harsh reality of the challenges we faced as graduate students here at this university, um, even though many of us bleed blue and yellow or gold, whatever color. Um, <clears throat> that one of the things Leo really stood for for many of us, and many of us who can't be here today because we're working, right? Um, we're busy saving the world in many ways, um, is I've met many people, alumni, who have said, I didn't have the test scores or the GPA or X, Y, and Z to get in, but it was because of Leo that I got in, because he fought for me. And these are the people we see locally, statewide, federally, that are doing amazing work. And so I want to just acknowledge the fact that, like, I think for the five here, like, he fought for each one. And, you know, as mentioned, he would call not to, to judge, but to really hear the full story. Um, so if there's any other kind of stories of that, I think it's, it's very telling, because that is not something that, um, you know, goes towards promotion, really. Does anyone want to add or respond to the two comments here? If not, then we'll take, we have three minutes left. I think we can take one more question or comment from the floor. So. I think with that, I don't see anyone else. And so, I, yes, Ed? You know, um, I suppose we have a list. So just, I'll be, I'll be writing, or, you know, to, to all of you about doing a campaign for getting a promotion for Leo. Great, thank you. Thank you. Let me, allow me then to thank again each of the uh, members on this panel, and I really appreciate the comments that were made. Us five here are just one small element of a growing army of academics and activists and scholars and community leaders that will build from the lessons of this one extraordinary person. And so to Evelise and the family, uh, you've heard so much today, and uh, this isn't about sorrow, and this isn't about grief. This is really about re-energizing us and recommitting ourselves to what we used to call a movement. But it is a movement, and Leo is just one of the many soldiers that has prodded us to stay involved, make a difference, and prepare to educate the next generation that will take over California and will take over this country. And that is our duty, and Leo would be very happy about that. Thank you very much, folks, and I think Graciela or somebody might wind this up for us. Thank you, folks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.